Murder, She Told, true crime stories from Maine, New England, and small town USA. I'm your host, Kristen Zevi. You can connect with me and suggest your hometown crime at MurderSheTold.com and follow me on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. The hallway was unusually dark as Judith Ron and her boyfriend climbed the stairs of her three-level apartment building on Merrimack Street in Manchester, New Hampshire, where she shared a two-bedroom apartment with her 14-year-old daughter, Laureen. It was about 1 a.m. on a Saturday evening, and the pair had just gotten back from a tennis tournament her boyfriend was playing in, and Laureen, who normally went with her mother to watch the matches every weekend, had lobbied her to stay home. Laureen wanted to enjoy the first Saturday of her eighth-grade spring break, and her mother finally gave in and let her stay home. Judith carefully felt her way up the stairs to the third-floor apartment, in the pitch darkness. Maybe a fuse had blown. When she got to her familiar front door, she found the door unlocked and her heart skipped a beat. Surely her daughter had just been careless when she went to bed that night, right? This kind of negligence concerned Judith. She knew her daughter was young, but there had been a lot of scary things happening in the neighborhood recently, and forgetting to lock the door wasn't an option. Judith peered into her daughter's room and found Lorene sleeping under the covers, so she went to get ready for bed herself. But just as Judith was about to turn out the lights, the door to Lorene's room creaked open, and a sleepy, slightly hungover girl walked out, rubbing her eyes. This girl was not her daughter. Where's Lorene? Judith asked. She recognized the girl. This was one of Lorene's friends from school, Kristen. She went to sleep on the couch, Kristen said, squinting as she adjusted to the light of the living room. She then realized that Lorene wasn't on the couch. A stone in the pit of her stomach took the oxygen from her lungs when Judith saw her daughter's pillow and blanket, crumpled and alone on the cold couch. The ticking of the wall clock above the dresser counted the seconds as the reality of the situation set in. Suddenly, Judith's boyfriend yelled from down the hall, The back door to the apartment that opened up into a pitch-black hallway was also unlocked. But even more alarming, it was ajar, and Lorene was nowhere to be found. This is the story of the disappearance of Lorene Ron. It was the early morning hours of Sunday, April 27, 1980, and after two hours of panicked searching for Lorene, Making phone calls in the middle of the night to her friends and family, Judith called the police at 3.45 a.m. This was a time before Amber Alert. This was a time when police assumed missing teenagers were runaways who would return home soon, and usually advised parents like Judith to just give it time. The protocol, in absence of a sign of struggle, was simply to wait. The police believed that Lorene's case was no different. There was no sign of a struggle, and police thought that Lorene was probably just a runaway who would come back soon. Judith was a single mom in a time where women were harshly judged for it, and she and her daughter had gotten into a little fight earlier that day. Lorene probably just took off to punish her mom. But her mother didn't think so. Too many things just didn't add up. Lorene had just turned 14 earlier that month, 
And for her birthday, her mom got her a new pair of sneakers she'd been begging for, as well as some new clothes that Lorene loved. But all of those were left behind. The sneakers were sitting right there in the living room, next to Lorene's purse, something she typically carried everywhere, something her mom insisted to police she would never leave behind. The cops questioned Lorene's friend, Kristen, asking her to recount the activity from that evening. At first, she didn't seem to want to reveal much information. Perhaps she was afraid she might get in trouble. But what we know now is that Lorene and Kristen spent most of the day at the Rosebud Superette, which was only a five-minute walk away. A Superette is basically a small supermarket, like a New York City bodega, where you can get beer, wine, and other household basics. According to an article from the Manchester Inc. link, Lorene was spotted drinking with some older boys throughout the day. The legal drinking age in 1980 was 18, and Lorene was four years under age. The drinking age didn't change to 21 until 1984 in an effort to deter drinking amongst high school kids. And even though this was a time when high school drinking was the norm, Lorene was awfully young. The Rosebud Superette wasn't an uncommon place to find Lorene. It was a popular hangout for neighborhood teens, and she often met up with friends there, socializing for hours. Judith learned from a friend that she saw Lorene there that day, helping restock the wine coolers at the store. After being out all day, by 11 p.m., Lorene and Kristen returned to the apartment, and they weren't alone. A boy was with them. The written details on this are a little spotty, but there was at least one boy there that night, and maybe two and they were both older. One of them was either 15, according to one report, or 18, according to another. His name has never been publicly revealed, so I've given him one. Brad. There were two reports of a second boy who was with them at the apartment, one from a Reddit user who claimed Kristen was her mother, and a second from an article in the Union Leader. They were all drinking beer and wine at the apartment. Around 12.30 a.m., the group heard voices coming up the hallway. Brad panicked, thinking it was her mom coming home. He didn't want to get caught at the apartment so late at night, so Lorene helped him out the back door. Maybe this was why Judith's boyfriend discovered it ajar when they arrived, but Brad confirmed that he'd heard Lorene lock the door securely behind him. Police questioned another neighbor in the apartment building that corroborated the kids' accounts of hearing voices in the hallway outside the Ron apartment that evening. Kristen said that Laureen was setting up on the couch to sleep. This was the last time she saw her, but this was just the beginning of an investigation that would span over 40 years. 14-year-old Laureen Ron was a spunky teenager, described in articles as sweet, and unlikely to run away. She was outgoing and loved to sing and dance and had the brown hair and blue eyes that ran in the family. She had dreams of being an actress. She was an A student at Parkside Junior High, a precocious kid who had just turned 14. She and her mother were close and Judith said that they rarely fought despite the tiff that they'd gotten into the day she disappeared. Her circumstances were difficult though Lorene's home life was broken. Her father wasn't in the picture. He and Judith got divorced when Lorene was a baby, leaving her to raise her daughter alone. 
One of her aunts, Diane Penault, Judith's sister, told the union leader that Lorene was a bit troubled, that she hung out with the wrong crowd, and often it got her into trouble, drinking and smoking weed. And her other aunt, Jo Beth Swanson, said she grew up fast. Judith didn't let on in the newspapers that she knew about the mischief Lorene was getting into. But mothers often have an intuition about these sorts of things, and a reputation to protect. Her acting out was never anything serious, right? She had threatened to run away before, in the heat of the moment, but Judith never believed that would actually be the case. Her mother knew she would never leave home without her clothes, her shoes, and her purse. Right? Judith believed that her daughter wouldn't have run off on her own accord. But Lorene did spend a lot of time on the street with her friends, some of whom were a bit unsavory. And at the time, Manchester wasn't the safest place to live. Could one of her friends be behind her disappearance? Nell Porter-Brown told Harvard Magazine that certain parts of Manchester were like a ghost town, with tremendous vacancies and little foot and car traffic. Despite the fact that police still suspected Lorene was a runaway, they canvassed the area, trying to glean as much information as they could from neighbors. They inspected the apartment building and the surrounding areas. They discovered that the light bulbs in the hallway weren't out from a blown fuse or a tripped breaker, but were actually unscrewed just enough to kill the light. Was it a prank or part of a more sinister plot? They tracked down Brad and got his side of the story, but Brad told them exactly what Kristen said. He said that he left around 12.30 when they heard voices coming down the hall. Police cleared him as a suspect. Judith enlisted help to post missing persons flyers all around town and got the local newspapers to print her photo often. It was a mother's worst nightmare, seeing her daughter's face in the local paper in black and white, just a few terrifying pages away from the obituaries. Fluffy, dark hair framing a pretty face with a Mona Lisa smile and a precocious twinkle in her eye. The face of a girl, forever 14. A week later, a bus station employee came forward and told police that they sold a ticket at the terminal downtown to a girl who looked like Lorene that Saturday. Additionally, a bus driver in Boston identified a photo of Lorene as a girl he dropped off in Park Square around the time of her disappearance. He later recanted after seeing an updated photo, unsure if the girl was Lorene or not. Sadly, nothing ever came from these leads. But meanwhile, police had their eyes on someone local. Another detective who worked on the case, Kenneth Murby, told a local newspaper, the New Hampshire Sunday News, that Manchester police did have a strong suspect at the time. The man was 35 years old, 20 years Lorene Sr., and was known for inviting teenage girls over to his apartment with the prospects of beer. He was also alleged to have child pornography. Police searched his apartment, but they never found any solid evidence that he was linked to Lorene's disappearance. Judith called the police constantly, seeking updates on the case and sharing information. And just when things were starting to look bleak and the case was growing cold, her hard work paid off. Judith carefully reviewed each of her phone bills for any signs of unusual activity, hoping for a sign that her daughter was still alive. And in October of 1980, about six months after Lorene's disappearance, Judith found a clue. 
She was going over her monthly charges and discovered that three calls were charged to her account from an area code she didn't recognize. The area code was from California, and with the help of the local police department, they were able to determine that the three calls came from a motel payphone in Santa Monica. How did Judith get charged in New Hampshire for these calls originating from a California payphone? In 1980, you could dial zero from a payphone to get the operator on the line, and you could request that the call be billed to a third party. So in this case, if the caller at the Santa Monica Motel dialed zero and told the operator they wanted to bill it to a third party, the operator would have asked where they would like to bill it to, and they would have said Judith Ron's account in New Hampshire. But in theory, you can't just bill charges to somebody's account, though it did occasionally happen. The operator would have either asked the caller to wait while they called Judith to confirm the charges, or they would have to provide a PIN number to authorize the charges immediately. She knew that her daughter was alive, and perhaps this was a way of asking for help, or a clandestine way to let her know where she was. She had no family in California and knew of no connections that Lorene would have had there but she believed it was plausible that Lorene's big dream of being a Hollywood star may have led her there. She always liked warm weather and hated being back in New Hampshire, said Judith, who had moved from Miami to Manchester with Lorene when she was four and sometimes traveled with her to Florida for vacation. Although she received the bill in October, all three calls had been placed in July, three months after Lorene disappeared. Police learned not only where they were placed from, but also who they were placed to. Two of the calls were another payphone at a motel in nearby Santa Ana, and the third call was placed to a hotline that provided assistance and information to teens who had questions about sex. Judith begged the local police department to follow up on this promising lead, but they saw it as most likely a clerical error on the billing, or at most an odd coincidence but she wouldn't take no for an answer and called the local FBI in Concord, New Hampshire to ask for their support. They said that although they couldn't take the case without evidence of kidnapping, they referred her to two ex-FBI agents turned private investigators. She hired them both. In the months following the discovery of the calls, they traveled to California and looked into the two motels, but it turned up nothing. So they turned their attention to the sexual assistance hotline which was run by a doctor in California. The doctor said he knew nothing about Lorene, and he had no record of her call. He looked at a photo of her and said he'd never seen her before. Another dead end. When the leads dried up, Judith turned to more unconventional methods in her desperation for answers. She asked Lorene's friend Kristen to undergo hypnosis to help remember everything from that night, and she agreed. Judith went to psychics for help, some told her she was kidnapped, and others said she was murdered and buried under the floor of a fuel depot near the river. Judith took this information to the local police, and they took this possibility seriously and dug it up, but recovered nothing. Lorene had vanished, and no trace of her was found until months later, when her mom started to get weird calls. In the year following Lorene's disappearance, Judith received a number of mysterious calls in the middle of the night. The calls would come at 3.45 in the morning on a regular basis, and when she would pick up, nobody would talk on the other end. 3.45 was the time she reported Lorene missing to the police. Was it a coincidence, 
or a sign. Around Christmas time, the calls would come in on an almost daily basis. Oddly, Judith's sister Janet also received calls from an unknown female caller. She asked for Janet to put her son, Michael, on the line, and she referred to him as Mike. To the family, he was always known as Michael. Loreen was the only one who called him Mike. When he picked up the phone to talk, nobody responded. Judith asked for help from the police to trace these calls, but nothing could be done. The case grew cold. Five years after Loreen vanished, the friend who was in the apartment that night died suddenly. Brad had taken his own life and left a note for his family saying he couldn't take it anymore. So whatever Brad may have known about that night, he took it to his grave. One year later, in 1986, Judith was contacted by a childhood friend of Loreen's named Roger, who said that his mother received a mysterious phone call that was meant for him. He said that the girl on the line called herself Lori, or Loreen. His mother couldn't tell which it was. She mentioned that she was an old girlfriend of Roger's and asked for him. When his mom told the girl that Roger wasn't home, the caller hung up. That was the only call they ever received. But this moment reignited Judith's flagging hope that Loreen was still alive. Police were unable to trace where the call originated from. Roger agreed with Judith and told the union leader, quote, It had to be her. I think she ran away, and I think she's still alive. End quote. Judith agreed with him. Until they had a body, she would always believe her daughter was still alive. Around this time, Judith found an ally in D.C., the newly created National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They solicited help from police to look into the sexual hotline number again. When they followed up with the same doctor, his story had changed. He said it was possible that Loreen could have been in contact with his wife. He confessed that she often housed and took care of young runaway girls at their home from time to time. To their surprise, he also admitted that it was his wife not him, who ran the hotline number. He recalled a girl who came in with an older woman, saying she was from New Hampshire, and said that the girl looked a lot like the photo of Loreen. From articles I've read, it appears that law enforcement was able to get this statement, but little more. Not a business address, not an account from his wife, not even the name of the business. It's odd to think that this information wouldn't be available for what was described as a hotline to help teens with sexual education. This paired with the fact that the couple would regularly provide shelter to vulnerable and sexually active underage girls casts their supposed help hotline in a different light. Perhaps it wasn't so innocent of an operation. Before he got off the phone with investigators, he mentioned one more name the name of a prominent sex worker and porn star, Annie Sprinkle, who was a friend of his wife's. He suggested that she might know something about Loreen. But in what scenario could Annie Sprinkle be involved with this? Other than the mention of the doctor, her name had never come up in relation to this case or to the California motels that had been previously investigated. Annie was contacted, and she claimed that she had never met Loreen. She said that she was friends with the doctor's wife and knew of the hotline, but not much beyond that. She was never involved with any of the girls the wife took in. But what I didn't mention before 
is that the Santa Monica and Santa Ana motels in California were known bases of operation for the production of pornography, the same motels the 1980 calls originated. And even more chilling, the local officers confirmed that both motels were being investigated for the production of child pornography, led by a man known only as Dr. Z. Much like the elusive hotline doctor, Dr. Z was also housing these runaway girls, except he was putting them in his movies. But despite the similarities between the husband and wife duo's operation and the connection through the phone calls, it was never confirmed that Dr. Z was connected in any way to this hotline. Dr. Z was never found by police. Charles Pickett of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children told the union leader, quote, The one question that has never been resolved is the question of who this hotline doctor really was and what his involvement might have been with the phone calls that were billed to Judith Ron, end quote. He also added that it is possible that Lorene could have been tangled up in the underground world of child porn. Back then, there wasn't the kind of regulation sex workers have today and companies weren't required to check IDs and maintain a paper trail, making it much easier for predators to get their hooks into vulnerable young girls. Annie Sprinkle also said she had no idea if Lorene had been at the motels. It wasn't impossible, but it also wasn't too likely. The motels were regularly used for porn shoots, and many people were employed, but none of them reported seeing the young teen. Were they concealing something? Or was this just a red herring? Police weren't so sure. And I'm not sure if this was for work or pleasure, or maybe a little bit of both, but investigators watched all of Annie's films that were made during that time, looking for a girl who could have been Laureen. Women often change their appearance for porn to suit the shoot, and after the officer's close inspection, they concluded that nobody who resembled Lorene was featured in any of Annie Sprinkle's many films. Without anything to prove Annie was telling the truth that she didn't know anything about Lorene, investigators cleared her as a suspect. Today, Annie Sprinkle is a well-known sex-positive advocate and educator, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that she could have been a safe resource and a friend to young girls looking to break into the industry or who needed a place to go. There was also a possibility that something more sinister was brewing underneath. Through all of this, Judith maintained that her daughter was still out there and alive. Other than a mother's intuition, though, the leads continued to dry up, but that didn't stop people from creating their own. The rumor mill churned, some stories more outlandish than others. An FBI agent in Concord that Judith spoke to about her daughter's disappearance told her of modern slavery going on in Manchester and children being sold out of the country. Even a yarn about being lured in by the Mooney's cult, who had a chapter nearby and was allegedly taking in young teens to reprogram them. This was the same agent that turned her on to the helpful private investigators, so at least contacting the FBI wasn't a total bust. There were a number of additional reported sightings of Lorene throughout the 80s. Sightings in Boston and at bus terminals. A man claiming to see a sex worker in Anchorage, Alaska, who he thought might be Lorene based on the missing persons posters. By the mid-80s, Lorene's case file was a mountain of paper. Police also considered connections to similar crimes in the area, and there are some strange coincidences. 
The disappearance of 15-year-old Rachel Garden in Newton, New Hampshire, about 45 minutes away from Manchester, also had striking similarities to Lorene's case. Rachel went missing March 22, 1980, a little more than a month before Lorene. She left her home to go to a friend's and stopped at the Superette for a pack of gum and cigarettes. She never made it to her destination. Much like Lorene, she was initially treated as a runaway who'd left her clothes at home and dreamed of being anywhere but New Hampshire. It was later determined that on the night of her disappearance, she was seen talking to three young men, all with long criminal rap sheets, in a car near the Superette. One of the men allegedly confessed to killing her, but no evidence was ever found and a body has never been recovered. She remains missing to this day, and no charges have ever been made. Another case that bore some resemblance to Lorene's was that of Shirley McBride, who was 15 and went missing in July of 1984, four years after Lorene's disappearance from her home in the nearby city of Concord. Lorene and Shirley had very similar looks and were almost the same age. The strangest coincidence they looked into was that of 26-year-old Denise Denault. Denise lived just two blocks from the Rons on Merrimack Street and disappeared just a few months after Lorene. Denise went missing in July of 1980 after going to a club with one of her friends. What are the odds that another woman would go missing within four months of Lorene's disappearance from a location just a stone's throw away? But despite the striking similarities in all three cases, no official connections have ever been made. After many years with no leads, Judith got a call in 2005. Rick Jones, an investigator at the coroner's office in Las Vegas, thought that he may have found a match for her daughter. Rick was working on tracking down the identities of over 150 unidentified does in Clark County, Nevada, one who could be a possible match to Lorene. Her profile on the NamUs website says that she was most likely a teenager when she was killed, suggesting about 17 years old. She had shoulder-length light brown hair and blue eyes, and was 5'2 and about 103 pounds. She had a small blue homemade tattoo on her forearm in the shape of an S, similar enough to Lorene to warrant serious consideration. Her nude body was found by a passerby in the desert in Henderson. Her death was a homicide. She had a fractured skull and an intracranial hemorrhage from blunt force trauma and multiple stab wounds in her back. She'd only been dead for a few hours prior to discovery. Judith, who still lived in Florida, didn't believe this was a match for Lorene. Initially, it was reported that she had more reddish tones in her hair and that her eyes were green. Judith pointed out that her facial features were different and that Lorene was 5'4 and Jane Doe was 5'2. Lorene also would have been 14 and not 17. But Rick Jones didn't think this was out of the realm of possibility. This Jane Doe was found on October 5th, 1980, the year of her disappearance, just six months after she vanished and the calls that showed up on Judith's bill were placed in California in July of that same year, not so far from where she was found in the Las Vegas desert. At the time, Las Vegas was a magnet for runaways. What teenage girl doesn't think at some point that their hometown is lame and their parents are ruining their lives? 
dreaming of some glamorous life in a place where the lights are bright and stars are born. The truth is that golden cities like Las Vegas and Hollywood swallowed up girls like Lorene, naive, young, and dreaming of stardom, using them and spitting them out on the street. If Lorene was a runaway wanting to conceal her identity or sex-trafficked into the seedy world of child pornography, it's plausible that her hair could have been a different color. Jane's eyes were actually blue, and the two-inch height difference wasn't enough to rule out a match. Jane was found face down, and Rick Jones said that could have altered her facial features post-mortem. Quote, We rule out people by scientific means, and that's what we're currently doing. End quote. Jane's bones had been exhumed in 2003 from her unmarked grave to compare to another missing person that wasn't a match, so they had her DNA on file. Both Judith and Lorene's father provided DNA to test against, but I'm going to assume that, by lack of an update, they weren't a match. I reached out to the Clark County Coroner's Office for an update on Jane, but I hadn't heard back at the time of this recording. Jones spent all of his free time working on unidentified cases in the Las Vegas area, and he was a pioneer of a new generation of investigators in the digital age. Quote, I just wish I could help these people. I felt like if this was my daughter missing, I would never stop looking. And I fully believe that the families of these missing people have never stopped looking for their loved ones. End quote. It was time to take stock of the years of possibilities and near misses. Judith told the New Hampshire Sunday News in 2005, quote, The only thing I can think of is somebody has chloroformed her and given her a drug that made her lose her memory, or she's been sold out of the country or whatever. I can't imagine why she would never call me, end quote. Lorene's aunt, Diane Penault, also believes that Lorene is still alive. Quote, my gut tells me that something went wrong that night, and once it went wrong, there was no turning back. For whatever reason, fear, or whatever it was, there was no turning back. And I still feel that she's alive, and part of her wants to come home, but she still fears coming back. End quote. Every year at Christmas, she puts an egg carton angel Lorene made in first grade on the top of the tree in remembrance of her. Without anything concrete to go off, and still believing it's possible that she could one day be reunited with the woman who Lorene is today, Judith returned to unconventional methods to try and get answers. A Boston Globe article from 2008 talked about the psychics Judith consulted in Florida and said that not one had given her the answer that Lorene was dead. Though some of the answers are a little more on the outlandish side, like that she was abducted by an Asian gang and living in Israel, or that she had two children she was forced to give up. All of them said she was still alive. Some even foretold her return. One might see this perhaps misplaced faith in mysticism and roll their eyes, but I don't judge her for turning to something, anything, that could give her hope and keep her daughter's memory alive, or even lead her to the truth. I don't know loss as deeply as the bitter wound of a missing child. At what point do you just give up hope? After the public loses interest in the case? After a certain number of decades without answers? If you don't fight for your missing cold case child, who will? If you're Judith, you persist. Quote, 
I would rather have closure. I will deal with it no matter what it is. If they do find a body, I know I won't be happy about it, but I need the closure for myself because I'm hurting so much on the inside, end quote. There are so many twists and turns in this case that, when shaken up with a kaleidoscope of theories, makes it hard to discern relevance from irrelevance, fact from fiction. I find it difficult to decipher which pieces fit into the puzzle we're trying to piece together. Quote, What struck me particularly about this case was that this girl just disappeared off the face of the earth, end quote, Detective Fowler said. He believes that Loreen left the apartment willingly that night and that she expected to return shortly before her mother got back. The fact that her clothes were left behind was a possible indication that she planned to return. He also believed that she either left with somebody who was there or left to meet somebody she knew. Quote, There was absolutely no sign of a struggle. She didn't pack anything. She didn't take her clothes with her. That indicated to me that she was planning on coming home. End quote. Fowler still believes that some of the people who were interviewed early on in the investigation knew more than they were letting on. Maybe even exactly what happened. The truth. He said, In my heart, I want to believe she's alive, but I just don't know. Quote, This is one I wish I could have solved before I retired. It was one of those cases that was challenging, and I really wanted to find her one way or another. End quote. Fowler retired from the Manchester Police Department as detective lieutenant in 2000. Both Tony Fowler and Kenneth Murby, another investigator who worked on this case extensively as well, separately agreed that not solving this case for Judith was their biggest professional regret. Murby, who spent 33 years doing police work, was once so caught up in Lorene's case that he and his wife would spend hours looking for clues around Manchester. Quote, the girl literally disappeared. We made phone calls and sent dental charts all over the country wherever bodies were found. I guess there's still a ray of hope, and I've always had that hope for Lorene. It was one of the voids in my life, and someday before I die, I hope somebody finds the answer. End quote, Murby said. Unfortunately, that day hasn't come. Kenneth has since passed away and I spoke with his son, who told me the exact same thing, that his dad never stopped thinking about Loreen and what happened to her. But this story is far from over. The search continues today, and the torch has been passed on to a new breed of investigators. The photo that accompanies this story, the beautiful portrait of 14-year-old Loreen, was created on January 30th, 2021, two days before the release of this episode, by an expert in colorizing and enhancing old black-and-white photos on the online forum WebSleuths. The difference between the old photo and what has just been produced is striking. It breathes new life into a worn-out old newspaper photo of a long-forgotten teen, and new life into an investigation that is tantalizingly close to being solved. In November 2020, just a couple of months ago, an unidentified body of a woman found in Vancouver in 1998 was suggested as a possible match to Lorene. A reconstructive image of the woman was posted on doughnetwork.org. In April of 2020, and a savvy investigator linked it to Lorene's disappearance. 
It has been submitted to the British Columbia Coroner's Office by WebSleuth user Sam Spade. The woman died by suicide in 1998, 18 years after Lorene's disappearance, and, by all accounts, could be her. They both had brown hair and blue eyes, and they're a match for age range. Moreover, their resemblance is uncanny. I will link it in the show notes on MurderSheTold.com. I don't know the results of the investigation yet, but I hope to have an update to share in the future. Another stunning revelation came in 2017, when police came to realize that Denise Denault, the 26-year-old woman who went missing in July of 1980, lived only a few doors down from a man named Bob Evans. Sound familiar? Bob Evans is a pseudonym for Terry Rasmussen, the man who was later identified as a serial killer connected to the murders of the Bear Brook victims, as well as a few other missing New Hampshire women. Denise lived about two blocks from Loreen. Could it be that both Denise and Loreen were victims of a serial killer in their neighborhood? If Loreen is alive today, she would be 55 years old. Was Lorene abducted and trafficked? Did she leave the apartment willingly to run away in search of a more glamorous life? Did she fall into the world of pornography along the way? Why hasn't she come home, or at least called? Who exactly is Dr. Z? Judith has fought tirelessly for answers most of her adult life, and though she is nearing the end of her life, she's given us so much. It is now our responsibility to see this investigation to its conclusion. I ask you, dear listener, to help me and to help Judith solve this case. Knock the dust off of this one and put it into the limelight. Find out the registration details of the sex help hotline that Lorene may have called and track down the doctor and the wife involved. File FOIA requests for the case files from the New Hampshire and California jurisdictions involved with the investigation. Review the unidentified does on doughnetwork.org and NamUs for potential matches. Petition the Manchester Police Department to renew their efforts on the case. Get them to re-interview persons of interest that had direct or indirect knowledge of the night of her disappearance. Join the modern era of crime investigation. We're all in it together. And together, we will find out the truth. Welcome to the rabbit hole. I want to thank you so much for listening. I am so grateful that you chose to tune in, and I couldn't be here without you. You can follow Murder She Told on Instagram at Murder She Told Podcast for key photos from this episode and more. I am super excited to invite you to the Secret Murder She Told Facebook group, where you can connect directly with me and other listeners in the community to discuss this case, vote on upcoming episodes, and more. To get the invite, sign up for the mailing list on MurderSheTold.com. My sources for this episode include The Charlie Project, NamUs.gov, The Manchester Union Leader, The New Hampshire Sunday News, The Manchester Inklink, The Boston Globe, and WebSleuths. Additional resources include the book The Disappearance of Lorene Ron by Ruth Canton. Special thanks to Byron Willis for his writing support. All links for sources and media can be found in the episode link in the show notes and on MurderSheTold.com. If you're a friend or a family member of the victims or anyone connected to this story, you are more than welcome to reach out to me at MurderSheToldPod at gmail.com. 
If you have a story that needs to be told or would like to suggest one, I would love to hear from you. My only hope is that I've honored your stories in keeping the names of your family and friends alive. Thank you for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs>